Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Jimmy Hoover. And yes, if you're thinking it's a wonky week for us, it sure is. Yeah, we kind of threw out the the regular <laughs> schedule that we have this week. We recorded our special uh, Katanji Brown Jackson deep dive on Tuesday. Just a reminder to listeners to go check that one out. And here we are today on Friday, uh, recording our usual weekly roundup of the week in Supreme Court news. It was kind of fitting that we decided to do it on Friday because the Supreme Court decided to have two, not just one, opinion days this week, um, yesterday on Thursday and today on Friday. And now you're just saying before before we came on air that this feels like the big, the first big meaty opinion week at the at the Supreme Court so far this term, right? Yeah, I think both in substance and and frankly numbers, although like I feel like double checking the data on that and I know our data team has stats here. I wish I kind of had them on hand, but yeah, I feel like they're definitely kind of hitting their writing groove this week. Yeah, no, we've got four opinions in merits cases. Those are cases that were argued previously in the term and we are going to kind of break down some of the highlights uh, later on, but First, let's kind of check in on the Hill and see what's going on with that Briar vacancy. Natalie, do you have an update for us? Yeah, so the nomination process seems to just kind of be gliding along. Confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson will actually begin Monday, March 21st with introductory statements, and she will answer questions from senators that Tuesday and Wednesday. She's also been meeting with senators, and everything, frankly, seems to be on track for an early April confirmation vote. So let's get to the big news this week. Um, Just a few hours ago on Friday morning, the Supreme Court reinstated the death sentence for Boston bomber Zokar Tsarnaev. Uh, The court in a six to three majority ruling from Justice Thomas said that Tsarnaev had received a fair trial despite a later First Circuit ruling that his Sixth Amendment rights were violated. So the three liberal justices, this was a kind of a classic ideological split here, the three liberal justices dissented. And once again, Justice Breyer reiterated the, quote, problems inherent in a system that allows for the imposition of the death penalty. This case, he says, provides just one more example of some of those problems. So remind us again how we got here. Sarnayev was sentenced to death in 2015 for a plot in which he and his brother planted two homemade pressure cooker bombs near the finish line of the 2013 Boston Marathon. So all our listeners are probably familiar with this horrific event back in 2013 that killed three people, including an eight-year-old boy, and maimed and injured hundreds more. But this case centers around two findings that the First Circuit in Boston made in 2020 when it vacated his death sentence on the grounds that he didn't receive a fair trial. So first, the appeals court held that there was this issue of pretrial publicity that had tainted the sentence because the trial judge, in the First Circuit's view, failed to ask enough questions of jurors about, you know, what kind of exposure they had to the case from various articles or, uh, you know, TV reports, etc. And there was another independent ground upon which the First Circuit reversed and vacated his death sentence. And that is that in the Court of Appeals' view, the trial judge improperly barred Sarnayev's attorneys from introducing what they consider to be crucial mitigating evidence at the penalty phase of the trial. So specifically, we've talked about it before on the on the, uh, on the the show. We had on uh, Boston senior courts reporter Chris Villani, who's kind of explained this issue in depth. But kind of in short, the defense wanted to introduce evidence that Zokar's brother Tamerlan had been involved in this grisly triple homicide two years prior to the bombing, that is. 
Um, and the defense said that this evidence would have supported their argument that Zokar was following the lead of his jihadist brother, whom he knew was capable of these murderous acts of violence. So their theory was that, you know, if if presented this evidence, the jury possibly would have entertained a sentence less than death. So what did the court have to say about this on Friday? The majority, the sixth justice majority, reversed on both of those grounds. So first, Justice Thomas, writing for the court, says that the trial court handled the jury examination properly, and it, you know the trial court does not need to be held by a First Circuit rule on jury examination in high-profile cases. He said that the trial court had done an exhaustive voir dire. This is the process for kind of screening out jurors that are potentially biased. You know, numbering 1,373 potential jurors and a questionnaire with 100 inquiries and an additional three weeks of screening for the prospective 256 jurors who remained. So fairly exhaustive, but I, the, the argument was that there were there were missing questions on media contents, essentially, right? Yeah, so the First Circuit has adopted this kind of rule based on its own precedents that trial judges in some of these big cases have to have to actually ask about the specific content and exposure that that prospective jurors have had before actually seating them for a trial like this. And, uh, you know, in his opinion for the court, Clarence Thomas basically said that that supervisory authority that the First Circuit is claiming here is kind of overstepping the First Circuit's, you know, purview in a way. But this wasn't the only issue. Okay, so what about that other ground for vacating the death sentence? Where did the court land on that? Well, once again, Justice Thomas basically says that the trial judge did not abuse its discretion on this issue. Now, this is the one of the Waltham murders evidence um, that I just talked about. And Justice Thomas, kind of deferring to the court, says that he really credits the prosecution, the federal government's argument that this would have introducing this evidence at trial would have really confused the jurors. And I'll just kind of read kind of from what I consider to be the a part of his opinion that really sums up this point. He says, to make his point at sentencing, Zokar would have first had to show without any surviving witnesses what role Tamerlan actually played in these Waltham murders. And I'm kind of paraphrasing there. Quote, then he would have had to establish that he learned of the Waltham crimes before planning the bombings. Finally, he would have had to explain how his knowledge of Tamerlan's role in a nearly two-year-old violent robbery affected his own role in the bombings. Whatever other courts might think about an inquiry into a defendant's own prior bad acts, the district court reasonably thought that the Waltham murder inquiry risked confusing the jury in these proceedings. We see no basis to disturb that conclusion. So where did the dissenting justices land on these issues? So Justice Stephen Breyer writes the the principal dissent joined, um, mostly joined by um, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, and he really focuses on this mitigating evidence issue. He spends several pages going over how, in his view, quote, the Court of Appeals acted lawfully in holding that the district court should have allowed Zokar to introduce this evidence. Um, now, I should say, when I when I mentioned the the um, Kagan and Sotomayor only only partly joined his concurrence. That was actually, they, they, they left their signatures off the part of the dissenting opinion in which Breyer reiterates his kind of skepticism of the death penalty system and his view that it is possibly unconstitutional. So it's kind of interesting that he didn't get any other um, signatories on that part of his opinion. But, you know, this, this could be kind of one of the last times he really expresses his long-held skepticism towards the death penalty. 
um, before he retires from the court. So make of that what you will. But, you know, he doesn't really focus on this other issue of the pretrial publicity that, you know, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas spends a lot of his majority opinion talking about. And that's because if the court were to have agreed with Breyer that the district court should have allowed this mitigating evidence, then they wouldn't have really had to get to that pretrial issue. It would have just been, it's an independent grounds for vacating the sentence. But in any event, he basically says that it was well within the First Circuit's you know, supervisory authority to require the district court to kind of go into a little bit more depth in examining and potentially rooting out this juror um, media exposure, this tainted, this tainted jury pool. Now, I found it interesting, the, this pretrial issue and the specifically kind of the supervisory rule point to be made in this issue um, seemed to, to catch the attention of Justices Barrett and Justice Gorsuch. So can you talk a little bit about that? They, they had a separate concurrence, right? Yeah, it was pretty interesting. So Barrett writes separately to, quote, note my skepticism that the courts of appeals possess such supervisory power in the first place. And Gorsuch, as you say, joins that concurrence. Now, this goes a little bit beyond the actual majority opinion itself, which holds, you know, it recognizes that there is potentially the supervisory power of federal courts. But um, the majority says it, quote, does not extend to the creation of prophylactic supervisory rules that circumvent or supplement legal standards set out in decisions of this court. So you're right that this is a really interesting side issue in this case. It's not the only issue. And, you know, some chatter I've seen on, on Twitter from, for instance, uh, law professor Stephen Vladek suggests that this this could potentially be a, a big area of the law that that touches on more than just death penalty cases. So potentially one to, to keep an eye on um, as the as as it potentially rears its head in another case going forward. Now turning to a couple of the other big opinions from this week, um, the court actually in a pair of rulings bolstered the government's state secrets privileges um, from two cases that had sought to chip away at those privileges. I think the bigger of the two cases, um, we've talked about it fairly at length here um, on the podcast before is the U.S. versus Subaida case, um, which the court ruled on on Thursday. Um, if listeners might remember, we spoke about this kind of early on in, in our season here, right? Early on in the, in the term. Um, it, it involves a Guantanamo Bay detainee named Abu Zubaydah, who's been trying to subpoena information from two former CIA contractors about his torture, which allegedly took place at an agency black site in Poland. Um, the U.S. had argued that allowing him to seek and obtain that information could undermine intelligence relationships. Now, for, th for the record, this is actually not for a case that's happening here in the U.S., but for a case that's happening over in Poland. Right, because I, I seem to remember he's, he's seeking to hold these former Polish officials liable um, for potentially collaborating with the CIA while he was detained um, in the early 2000s, right? Exactly. And so he's seeking these the, this information from these contractors to help bolster his case um, right. to hold those Polish officials liable. So on Thursday, though, we got a split ruling in favor of the government invoking its state secrets privilege, which was a loss for Zubeda. So what happened here, Natalie? So Justice Breyer wrote the majority opinion, and he agreed with the CIA's argument that turning over the information would effectively confirm or deny the existence of a black site in Poland and damage foreign relations between U.S. and Poland. Now, I should also state here, 
it's kind of like a not so secret secret, right? right There's right. been extensive reporting um, that there was this black side in Poland, um, and not just reporting, right? That that I think it was the for- it was a former Polish official who had actually acknowledged its existence, also. So you know maybe the CIA hadn't confirmed it, but others had, right? Exactly. So others have, but the U.S. government, the CIA, has never officially said this was a black side and this is what happened here. I do believe they've actually have said that, you know, Zubita did undergo torture. Right. Um, so that's actually torture report. Right. Exactly. So that's actually not what's at stake here. It's it's kind of like where it happens that that he's trying to get information about and, and have it kind of officially on the record. So because this was kind of a not so secret secret, the Ninth Circuit had found that the state's secrets privilege didn't really apply in this case. Um they decided that Zubeda could interview two former CIA contractors um, since the state secrets privilege didn't really apply and it was kind of well known anyway. The government argued that while some of the details of the events of the detention site and even the location of the site might be known secondhand, the direct confirmation um, by the CIA is a much more serious foreign relations issue and 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 matter. And so the Supreme Court on Thursday, um, in a split decision, sided with the government. So what did Breyer say? Because I know he had the uh, opinion in this case, right? Yeah. So he basically noted, look, there's no official confirmation from the CIA about the existence of black sites in Poland. And even if that information had already been made public, allowing the subpoenas of two contractors essentially confirms it officially and kind of forces the government's hand here. Um, and that can harm foreign relations. Now, this was a messy one. I'm not going to lie. Um, there was a whole lot of concurrences with this one. Um, Chief Justice Roberts did join Justice Breyer in full, but Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett wrote a concurrence. Justice Thomas and Alito wrote a separate one, and Justice Kagan partially dissented. And then Justices Gorsuch and Sotomayor fully dissented. Um, not always a pairing you kind of see, right? Uh, <laughs> but but they basically totally disagreed that the government needed to invoke a state secret privilege for information that's already out there. Now, Natalie, I remember at oral arguments in this case, the the justices kind of seemed to be looking for some kind of compromise here. Um, even if, you know, the CIA contractors themselves weren't forced to testify, it seemed like some of the justices were asking about potentially Zubeda himself being able to um, testify in this proceeding. Um, is there any kind of way in which, you know, this case goes forward in the absence of some of this testimony? Yeah, so uh, our Law 360 senior reporter, Daniel Wilson, actually had a pretty interesting story about this case and and decision. Um, And it was interesting because Zubeda's attorney was like, this doesn't seem like the end of the road. And and that's partially because Justice Byron noted in his opinion that the government could allow Zubeda to seek information from the Polish government directly. And that's a different type of discovery request that might avoid the problems that kind of and, and the hurdles that are essentially now blocking his case in, in this current form. Um, so Zubeda's attorney said they plan to act accordingly with that finding. So it, it does seem like there's there's an avenue here that he can keep going along to try and get that information. Now, you mentioned that this was one of two uh, state secrets cases this week. So kinda, can right. you give us the short of uh, what happened in this morning's decision? That's right. So. This morning, Friday morning, uh, the court also ruled in a case known as FBI versus Fasaga. Um, and 
we've talked about this case, I think, as well. Um, it was uh, a proposed class action brought by two Muslim men in California who alleged the FBI illegally spied on them and others. Um, the case had been largely dismissed due to the alleged risk of revealing details of the counterterrorism investigation that's kind of at the heart of uh, the, the surveillance. Um, and they'd been arguing that, you know, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, which sets out procedures for dealing with sensitive um, evidence related to like electronic surveillance, um, basically overrides the state secrets privilege. The court, you know, in this kind of back-to-back, you know, wins for for state secrets privileges said, nope, that's not the case. Um, and unanimously held in this one that the lower court was right in making the call that uh, that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act doesn't override state secrets. So I know I said we were going to just do the highlights from this week, but we've already talked about three. I feel like it would be unfair to to leave out the last uh, opinion, at least for purposes of Let's our show. Let's go for it. Okay. Let's go for it. So th- this came in um, yesterday on Thursday in the case Cameron versus EMW Women's Surgical Center, and it was kind of an interesting decision. It was a uh, it was an eight to one ruling actually that held that the Sixth Circuit was wrong to deny Kentucky Attorney General Daniel Cameron's request to take up the defense of a state abortion law after other state officials refused to first pursue further appeals in the case. So the Republican Attorney General was seeking to step in and defend this law restricting, uh, you know, a common second trimester abortion method. Um, he had requested to intervene after the new Democratic governor's health secretary had declined to seek a full circuit rehearing of a loss before a panel. And basically, uh, the you know Cameron was appealing to the Supreme Court saying he should have been allowed to intervene. And in this eight to one ruling, the Supreme Court agreed and said that, you know, although the litigation at this point had proceeded for years, that factor is not dispositive, Samuel Alito writes. He says, quote, the attorney general's need to seek intervention did not arise until the secretary ceased defending the state law and the timeliness of his motion should be assessed in relation to that point in time. So this is, I think we've mentioned this before, this is this is an abortion case, but it's not really, I mean, it's really a case about civil procedure and intervention rules. And that's why it's not like, you know, as big of a deal, for instance, as, you know, uh, uh, the Dobbs case involving the the fate of Roe versus Wade that could be potentially decided later in the term, but an interesting one for uh, civil procedure nerds. And uh, there's a lot to dive into, but I think we'll probably just leave it at that. Right, Natalie? Yeah, that's been a lot, I feel, to digest uh, with the four opinions this week. I am excited to see kind of what pops up next week because we have more opinions coming on Monday. Yeah, they are starting to come a little bit more frequently now as we approach the end of the term. Um, It's kind of been slow up to this point, but it seems like uh, they're starting to crank out some of their their work. Um, So, yeah, exactly. And arguments are still going on. Arguments are still going on, and there's a... Supreme Court nomination battle and kind of one thing that I've been curious about and and this is totally unrelated to anything we've talked about so far but you know Justice Breyer is not actually going to leave the bench until the end of the term right so if the Senate is going to confirm Judge Jackson in April I mean if I were her I'd be on a beach somewhere in Mexico I would be checked out because she doesn't have to from my understanding hear any DC circuit cases and she's got several months to get up to speed before the start of the next Supreme Court term in October but you know I'm sure it would be a nice long transition period (laughs) like yeah I would say 
Um, but anyway, I, I, I suspect that she'll probably be, you know, studying up on cases and all this. You can do stuff. that from the beach. Yeah, true. Yeah, just get a good Wi-Fi connection. Uh, anyway, Natalie, I think that just about does it. Yeah, thanks so much, Jimmy. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank contributing reporters, Daniel Wilson and Chris Villani. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. <laughs>